Lord, as we continue to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we rejoice that in him are the words of life. So we pray that as we heard those words today, as we hear them in your holy scriptures, that we would share them, that we might proclaim this week that Christ is indeed risen, that we might, first of all, live in the joy of the resurrection given to us in our baptism, given to us in your holy word, given to us in the Lord's Supper, but that also we might be a witness to that resurrection to those in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would grant us faith, that we might believe that the one who conquered death in the grave is the God who was and is and is to come, the Almighty One, that we might trust him with our lives, that we might live according to your grace. And Lord, as we read these words of John 2, may we once again be reminded that Christ is the sacrifice for all sins, that he is the place where we worship you. And Lord, may we once again see Jesus in his name. Okay, so um, John chapter 2, we kind of finished the first section last week. Not all of you were here, but that's okay. Um, So the first half of John 2, or the first part of John 2, is the wedding at Cana, the the miracle of turning water into wine. And the most important thing you want to get out of that whole story is the idea that this entire first miracle is really pointing toward the cross. Okay? It sets it up right away in the beginning. On the third day is a resurrection is a resurrection reference. So we're right away to the time of the of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then the mention of Jesus' mother, who only occurs in chapter two, and then also at the cross. So right away we're kind of even by the characters involved, we're moved to the cross. And then the statement of Jesus with my hour has not yet come. And any time the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about his hour, it's always a reference to the cross. So all of these things move us to read this entire miracle story as, a, as pointing ahead as a sign that points to the cross. Okay? And remember, whenever I say cross, I also mean resurrection. They're not two different events, right? They're, they're this... It's Jesus' death and resurrection is all kind of one event, right? So you never have the cross without the resurrection, and you obviously can't have a resurrection without a death. So it's always one event, right? In John's gospel, the emphasis is always going to be on the actual death on the cross. That's always John's emphasis, and therefore mine. But that's his emphasis. Um, Paul does things a little differently. The other gospel writers do things a little differently. But in John, it really is this. Okay? Now, what that means is as you read through this story, um, it's much more than just a story about a wedding and the lack of liquid that that tastes good or whatever. Um, This is really a story. Did this actually happen? Did Jesus actually go to a wedding one day and they were out of wine and they changed water into wine? Did that actually happen? Yes. Okay. So when we talk about the gospel writers writing in such a way to move us to think about something else, we're not minimizing the historical accuracy of the event. Right? They actually happened. But remember, as John is choosing to tell us the stories, he's telling them in such a way that everything he tells us points ahead to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So as he sits down to tell you the story of the first miracle, 
he does it in such a way that he's emphasizing things that bring us to a larger picture, which ends at the cross and the resurrection. Does that make sense? So, so that's important in the other Gospels as well, right? So you'll say, well, um, here's the story of, I don't know, what do you want to pick? Jesus walking on the water. It's a little different in Matthew and Mark. It's a little different in John. So did Jesus actually walk on water or is this just like some kind of metaphor? The action is both. He walked on water and it's a metaphor. Okay, so remember this, that as the gospel writers write, they are writing about the actual events that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. He actually performed miracles. He actually walked on water. He actually raised the dead. He actually fed 5,000. He was born of a virgin, right? And the fact that he did those things, they use to point us ahead to a greater reality. Okay, in the synoptic gospels, they like to talk a lot. Remember, whenever I say synoptic, that's a that's shorthand for... Not John. Right, the other three gospels, not John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? So whenever I say synoptic, that's just shorthand, which now is taking me longer, for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? And since I'm a John guy, it's also kind of going synoptic. I'm just kidding. I love the synoptic gospels. Um, but in the synoptic gospels, you read a lot about the kingdom of God, okay? Or kingdom of heaven, right? You, does that sound familiar? When Jesus is saying, well, you guys know this when you read Matthew, a lot will say, well, the kingdom of God is like, and then he tells a parable. It's like a mustard seed, right? Okay, well, this is kind of one of their big metaphorical phrases they're using to say that all these events that are happening in Jesus' life are part of a larger picture. Okay, so, so when Jesus does a miracle, but he, he, he casts out a demon, right? <coughs> what, what the gospel writers are getting you to see is that this little instance is part of a larger picture. And what they mean by this is when you read kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, what you want to read is this is what it looks like when God is reigning. Okay? When God is reigning as king, this is what it looks like. The demons lose. Sickness loses. Blindness loses. What wins? Life, healing, wholeness. Right? When God shows up, his creation is restored to the way it was when he first showed up in Genesis. Okay? So, so this is what we're getting at as we're reading, the, as we're reading this first of the signs, the miracle of Canaan, um, Cana, John actually says, this is the first of his signs. As a matter of fact, it could be the, the, the chief of his signs. And then in, we read today in the gospel reading that all the signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing you have life in his name, right? And that's a cross event. So, so this is what we're reading in the Red in Canaan, and all these ways we're reading it is pointing us toward the cross. Okay? Does that make sense? Questions or thoughts? Really? What does synoptic mean? How is that synoptic is really... Um, 
the easiest way to think of it is this is this is a very simple explanation, but think of <coughs> optics. When you say the optic of something is how it looks, right? And this kind of means similar or alike or together, so they look alike. We have to do it this way in English. They look alike. And what that means is, the, the easiest way to think about it is, they kind of look at the, death, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus from the same point of view. Okay. Right? They kind of look at it the same. John doesn't. Very different. Right? So it's really saying that these three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they look alike. They're very similar looking. They look at life, death, resurrection of Jesus the same, and they kind of look alike when you read them, as opposed to John, which is a totally different way to tell a story. That's basically what it means. Does that make sense? There's a lot more to it. But that's kind of what it means. So the easiest thing to think of is optics. They look alike. They have the same point of view. Okay? Any other questions or thoughts? Okay. Yeah. One more. Yes. Um, it's a bonus. <laughs> Do you think Mary knew what Jesus was referring to when he said, my time has not yet come? No. I don't. Some people do. I don't. I think that Mary... I think Mary knew a lot more about Jesus than we might want to give her credit for sometimes. But she also didn't fully comprehend how it was all going to play out. No one did. I mean, let's be honest. One of the things the Gospels tell us, all four of the Gospels, is no one predicted he was going to go to a cross and die. Even when he told them, this is what's going to happen, they were like, yeah, that's nice. That's one of the metaphor things, right? I mean, they did not actually believe that he was going to go be crucified by the Romans in Jerusalem with the authority of the Jews and die. Nobody got that. Okay? Um, so, so I think Mary knew... She knew enough to trust that Jesus was who the angel said he is, right? I mean, she knows, she definitely is aware of the virgin birth. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. So she knows that when the angel showed up and said, you're going to have a child, and then all the other things the angel said about him, well, if that part comes true, she's probably thinking, the rest is going to come true too, right? So she knows who he is, but but until it all happens, she doesn't necessarily know all the details yet. I mean, she knows something's going to happen, and Jesus is probably saying these things to her, and she's going, okay, I trust you, but I don't know what it means yet. Right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, or anybody else have a different opinion of that? Or I was just thinking that they were told and couldn't believe, in the, even though it was, you know, blanket, you know, statements, mm -hmm. this is what's going to happen. Yep. And they couldn't believe, and it really kind of points out, I think, that how much a miracle it is for faith. Yeah. And how much we, looking back, might not realize what a miracle we have in our life when we do believe. Right. And so sometimes we beat ourselves up, but we just the fact that we believe this is a sign. Just the fact that you want to believe this yeah. is, is a pretty miraculous thing. I mean, it really is. And that's, that's a very important point you're making. 
is, and that's why we always emphasize this, is that, is that faith is not something that you do. Right? Even your faith is a gift to you from the Holy Spirit. That God grants you faith by His Spirit and the fact that you even want to believe this, even when it's weird and you're not sure you get it and it's, you kind of doubt things and I don't know, that's okay. The fact that you actually want to believe this is the Spirit, right, working this faith in our hearts. And one of the most comforting things about the Gospels for a lot of people is that the very disciples themselves who followed him for two and a half to three years didn't get it. They simply didn't get it. Okay, they, they saw, they heard, they trusted in Jesus, but they didn't understand. And it's only by the Holy Spirit that the, these clueless disciples become the apostles of the church that then teach us doctrine. See, it's not the, the disciples being so smart. No, it's the Holy Spirit then that leads them into all this truth and teaches them the truth of Jesus Christ so that they become the, the writers of scripture, right? But it's not their intellect. And it's not even the fact that they saw Jesus face to face. As a matter of fact, that kind of makes it harder sometimes, right? Sometimes seeing somebody face to face makes it harder for you to believe who they are because like, you know, their faults and you know, they're, Jesus didn't have faults, of course, but he probably didn't look a lot like God. Right? I mean, that's just a little hard to get around when, when Jesus is like, guys, I'm kind of tired today. And they're like, okay, God. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's just weird. You know, I mean, I'm pretty sure he was really good at devotional time before they went to bed, but yeah. <laughs> it would just be weird. Robin. In, about revelations. Yeah. And, you know, they have this vision. I mean, John showed. And the thing that kind of bothers me out of all the details is the, the tongue is like swords. Yeah. Just, his swords coming out of yeah, his mouth. Yeah. Um, so, so the sword is the word of God. That's one of the most, that's it's a very prominent uh, metaphor in the New Testament. Paul uses it. The book of Revelation uses it a couple times. The book of Hebrews uses it. The word of God is is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. That's from Hebrews. Um, so Paul says um, that the, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Okay? As a matter of fact, yeah. So, anyway. Um, so, so whenever you hear sword and word, that's the comparison, is that the Word of God, one of the metaphors for it, is a sword. And the important thing is that it, it can kill and defend and also give life. So, so it's just this, it's a prevailing metaphor of the Word of God. And it, and it actually goes back to the Old Testament where the Word of God <coughs> does things, right? It's, it's active. It actually does things. So, since we're talking about overarching metaphors, one of the overarching metaphors in the whole Bible is that God works through his word to interact with his creation. You might not have ever considered that before, but the whole fact that God communicates to us through words 
is actually a major deal. It's hugely important. I mean, we could make up other ways to communicate with us, but the fact is that he has chosen to say, if you want to know me, you will know me through words. And that's why in John chapter 1, when Jesus shows up, he is the word. Okay? Because this is the way God has said, when I interact with my creation, I will do so through my word. So he speaks creation into being. He gives his people his word. Right? He continually speaks. He's always speaking. God is always speaking. And then his people are always speaking. And the way his people talk about God is by speaking and writing. And it's all words. Okay? So... So when Jesus shows up with a sword in his mouth, that's, that's really saying that his word can kill and give life. That that's how powerful his words are. Michelle, we'll go down the road. Susan, you're next. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, we're really glad there's not journaling because we've been like, oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> oh, I thought this. Right? And so that's what you have. You have a lot of that in the in the recorded gospels that we do have that are all written after the resurrection. But we do have them being very honest about Peter telling Jesus, No, you can't go to the cross and die, you're wrong. I mean that's them kind of admitting that, you know, they didn't quite get all this yet. So, yeah, it would be interesting to know exactly what... There's a lot of passages where you go, why don't we have that? You know, what, why don't we have what Jesus told the disciples on the road to Emmaus? That would be really helpful. It, since he explained the entire Old Testament is pointing to him and his death and resurrection. It's like, well, why can't we have that? I'd, I'd get rid of all the, hey, how y'all doing at the end of Romans. There's like a whole chapter of Paul going, hey... It's like, why do I need that? I'd rather have Jesus telling the disciples of the Lord Emmaus all the Old Testament prophecies. That'd be really cool. But once again, God didn't consult me. So that's part of it. That's part of it. You know, is that what we have is exactly what he wants us to have to believe. Even if I don't get it. Susan? I'm just thinking back to the Old Testament. You have the Garden of Eden where God... Confronts Adam, why are you clothed? Then you have the flood. Yeah. God directly wipes out people. Yeah. Then you have the Tower of Babel. Yep. He's mad because they're building this thing. Yeah. It makes them all confounded. Yeah. You can't understand. So in the Old Testament, you have God almost directly interacting with people. And then in the New Testament, you have Christ who comes to do the interacting. Right. So who is, this is a weird question, who is the God who interacts with people? Jesus. Jesus. So who was in the garden talking to Adam and Eve? Jesus. Who was the one that was with Noah and sent the flood? Jesus. Who is the one who had the issue with the Tower of Babel? It's Jesus. So all these things are really written that we might look ahead. Like I said, this is, I'll admit this publicly, and I don't take all the flack for it in the world, but the entire Old Testament is this. It's a sign getting us here. That's the entire Old Testament. 
It is an overarching sign to get us to the fulfillment of God's plan for his people. The, all the sacrifices are pointing ahead to the sacrifice. All the covenants are pointing ahead to the covenant. All the death is pointing ahead to the death. All the promises of life are pointing ahead to the life. All the times when God interacts with his people is talking, pointing ahead to the time when God will dwell with his people. Right? And now what happens is this is saying there's yet more to come in the last time, the last days. Okay? Which this is part of it. But now we are in the point where we're saying, okay, we look back and see that. But now we live with the promise when all this will occur in a whole other way. So when I say God will dwell with his people, it's not just one guy for 33 years or so. It's we will live forever with God and he will live with us and we will be his people. Why? Because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so it's not only the Old Testament points ahead to the cross. Now we live looking back at the cross, but also looking ahead for the fulfillment of all of this. And so what happens is when you read the Old Testament, again, did those things actually happen? Methuselah really lived for 969 years? Or is it a metaphor? Or is it a metaphor? It's both. He actually lived 969 years and these things are written to help us point ahead to God's plan for his people, right? So, see, that's the point. Is, is you, be, because I say the Old Testament is a sign pointing ahead of Jesus doesn't mean it's not true. It is true. It all happened. And it happens in such a way that we learn the way God interacts with his people and what his plan is, and it comes to fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Does that make sense? So, go ahead. Right. So so that's who that's who your God is. He was. Whatever that whatever, you know. If you say, well, was God? Yes. He was. Is he? Yes. Is he yet to come? Yes. So there you go. That's one of those things that God just is, you know, right? That's one of the qualifications of being God. Yeah. And that's Jesus. Okay? Any other questions? Tom? Talking about Jesus as the Word, yeah. is that generic, independent of language, or is the Word given a context in language with Hebrew? Lost you on that one. Huh? No, no. <laughs> um, I'm deciding how to answer it. No. I'm there's there's the six month answer and there's the five minute answer. I'll take the five-minute one. Yeah. <laughs> the five-minute one might, in, might require a six-month explanation. So that's a very good question. Um, does Jesus as the Word actually exist in the context of human language? And if so, is it, is it contingent on Hebrew? The first answer is no. It does not exist in the realm of Hebrew because Jesus is called the Word in Greek and he's called the Logos which is not a Hebrew word. However, there is a Hebrew word, all right, in, in English, since you can't read Hebrew, which is davar, 
which is the Hebrew, that's the Hebrew version of the word word. And just like logos, it means more than just word. It means, it can mean thought, it can mean event, it can mean thing, okay? So can this, okay? So when Jesus is called the word, he is called this thing of God that actually does stuff. But it also is the word that can mean, like I'm speaking words. Now there are other words that also mean words from your tongue. But this word can mean that. So, it, so these are both words. So when Jesus is called word, I want you to think about it this way, okay? This is, this is my simple explanation, is that the second commandment, yeah, we're done writing, I'm tired of writing. Second commandment is, do not take the, Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. Right, but none of us interpret commandments that way anymore. So what is the second commandment really about? How to use your tongue, how to speak, okay? And what we are to speak is, what does Luther say? What's Luther's, how does Luther explain that? Right? We should fear and love God so we do not curse, swear, lie, deceive, use satanic arts. We got witchcraft in his name. But call upon every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. See, the whole point of the second commandment is how to use your tongue. How do you use your words? And this is, this is the reason I'm getting to this, is that I think what you can understand from the Holy Scriptures is the fact that God gave us language to do what? To praise him and to tell others about him. That's why you have language. To praise God and to tell others about him. Why are you using words otherwise? Because we're sinners. Yes, because you're sinners. Because you're taking language and you're using it to serve your self. <clears throat> Tower of Babel, anyone? See, I think the reason Jesus is the word, that's one of the reasons that this is the metaphor that's so prominent in Scripture, is that this is really weird. And this is going to get in the six-month answer. Um, <laughs> do you know that scientists can't figure out how we talk? They can't figure out why we can speak. It always hits the 60s. Yeah, well, <laughs> But there's, there's something in humans that allow us to speak. We can teach animals to mimic speech, but we can't, animals cannot speak. They can, say, they can make the same sounds, they can mimic words, but they can't actually speak the way humans speak. And you mean by having a thought I've got thought behind it and growing up in speech. So it's not about intelligence because babies learn to speak before they're intelligent. Right? Mm -hmm. And they develop very complex linguistic skill without any effort. Nobody knows how this happens. This is one of the, the great mysteries of science 
I mean, if you, if you talk about it from a linguistic point of view, if you, if you study linguistics, this is one of the most amazing characters of humanity is that we learn languages inherently. Now, most of us sitting here learn one language inherently, which is a weakness of the Western society, is that we believe our language is one language we need to learn. But humans can learn languages without trying. Why? Because, because God made us that way, right? And that's important. That's extremely important, that God gave humans the gift of language. He made us in his image. In the image of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the word, he made us. And the reason he gave us language and tongues and the ability to speak and think in this way is to praise him with our words and to serve others with our words. And any time you aren't praising him or serving your neighbor with your words, you are sinning. That's why we talk about sinning in thought, word, and deed. See, our words are very, very powerful because God says through the word, I will affect people. Right? So one of the things that we learn is that our very words are to be Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. See, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. One of the goals of Bible study, of, of the readings in church, of spending time in devotion, is that we learn to think Scripture. That the words that fill your coconut are Scripture words. And this world is competing with that. It's trying to throw all other words at you. No, you're supposed to think uh, Endgame and Avengers and Game of Thrones and, right? They're saying, no, 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 those are the words you're supposed to be thinking. And, and we go, ooh, those are fun. No, they're not. No, they're not. They're tempting us to have a narrative in our brain that isn't that of Scripture. And God's Word says to us, these are the words of life. What do you say in the sermon today? This, the words of this life. That's what we come here to hear, and that's what we learn to speak. And really, by the grace of God, it's also what we learn to think so that our brains are filled with this word of life. Our tongues proclaim this word of life. And we, look, and we long to hear again the words of life. Does that make sense? With Jesus then being the physical embodiment of that. I was thinking about in my more legalistic mindset. Yeah. It would be, okay, I'm just going to always say but it really gets down to deeper than that into motivations, because out of motivations you speak. Right. So just us, just me, and this is throwing myself, because I remember, okay, I'm just gonna say things that line up this way. Right. So that the things came out of my mouth right. Uh-huh. And then you find you can't do it. Right. Yeah, it's you can't. <laughs> because um, there's something deep and wicked in my heart. Yeah. <laughs> that which you know, and you don't you can't even ask for an ice cream correctly. 
Right. <laughs> Without, yeah. And that's, and that's the problem is that this is who we are created to be in Christ and this is who we will be in Christ in the eschaton in the land times. But between now and then, this is our struggle with our concupiscence is that our, our sinful nature wars against this so that my words are very often not words of Christ. Even if I see, even if all I do is read the Bible all day, every day, my sinful nature will still drive me to speak words that aren't of Christ. Right? And so this is why we live in forgiveness with one another. Right? Yeah. And this is why we seek forgiveness from one another. Is I, I shouldn't have said that. I mean, how many times have you thought that or said that? Oops. I shouldn't have said that. And that includes comments on the internet. Right? Or however you do your comments on the internet. <laughs> or even thoughts because a mute person. Exactly. Now all of a sudden... See, that's, this is why it's a six-month six month answer. Because <laughs> words might not be any different than thoughts. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, of both from a scientific point of view and also a philosophical point of view that helps, us, that helps us really come to the conclusion that there is no difference between words and thoughts. One is just a physical verbalization of the other. Right? And the question is, which is driving which? That's where it gets into be kind of a weird discussion. But that doesn't catch right? So if you think it, it's still wrong, but what you say is can, worse. <laughs> it can affect other people. Yeah. Like yeah. So, so we confess our thoughts because they're wrong, right? They're sinful thoughts. But our words can actually do more damage to our neighbor. And that's... That's something to very be really careful about. And this is why the book of James spends a lot of time talking about controlling the tongue. Right? The book of James, this is kind of the major law of the book of James, is that you can't control your tongue. Nobody can. I mean, James has this great verse that says, out of the same mouth comes cursings and blessings. My brothers, this should not be. And he's not saying get rid of the blessings. Right? So all we do is curse. No, he's saying, get rid of the cursings so that only words we speak are that of blessings. Ephesians 4.29 Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building up the brethren. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Just try that this week. Every single word you speak builds someone else up in Christ. Refuse to speak a word that doesn't build up somebody in Christ. Call me in an hour and see how you do. <laughs> exactly. You're like, oh, I just won't speak. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Because that's your reaction is, I guess I won't be talking much this week. But see, that's, this is, so let's be honest about this. We'll get to John 2 in a couple seconds. Let's be honest about this. We are called to live holy lives. There is no, let me say it a different way. The, the New Testament is very clear that we are called to live holy lives. You are not called to sin. You are called to live holy lives. We do not aim at sinning and say, God's got to deal with the fact that I sin just because I'm a sinner. No, we live holy lives. That's who you are called to be in Christ. That's who I am called to be in Christ. When you fail, does that mean you're not in Christ? No, never. See, that's the gospel. The gospel is when you fail to live a holy life that does not remove you from God's kingdom. God says 
I forgive you. Christ has paid it all on the cross. He's taken your sins away and you are forgiven. Now, go live a holy life. And the second you fail, don't forget the cross is stronger than your sin. Right? And you repent and you try again. But we never say there's no point in trying to live holy lives. Yes, there is a point. You've been made holy in Christ. Go live that way. He didn't forgive your sins so you could sin some more. He forgave your sins so you could live holy and decent lives. And here's what I'm here to tell you is that holy and decent is better for you than sinful and trashy. It just is. Because that's the way God made you. And that's the way you're going to live for all of eternity and think it's wonderful. So you might as well try now. It's also way better for everyone who interacts with you every day if you're holy and decent instead of not. Does that make sense? So yeah, you can't get legalistic about it where, you know, I have to do this, otherwise God won't love me. No, 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 that's not the point. We live these ways because God loves us. And that love will never change, ever. Whether you're really good at it or really bad at it, he's not going to love you more or less. He loves you fully. Fully, that's Christ. Okay? His love is not contingent on your behavior. So people today get confused about natural consequences versus God. Yeah. Something. Yeah, so do I. I don't know how to work that out. I have no idea how to deal with natural consequences versus God doing stuff. I have no idea. Do you? Anybody have any insightful things? Because I don't. I don't know. I believe that God is in control. What's that? So that's where we start beating ourselves up. If we have a natural consequence, we're like, oh, God's mad at us. No. No. God, okay, good. So that point of view, I do know. So God's punishment for sin is here. If you sin, God's going to punish that sin. Right? Where? here okay that we know the wrath of God has been satisfied here all sin all time paid for so if something bad happens in your life whatever it is your Starbucks isn't the wrong kind or whatever some kind of tragedy right your internet isn't as fast as you want it to be some kind of tragedy do not think, oh, that's because I sinned yesterday and God's up there going, oh, I'm going to get you now. No, if that was the case, you'd be dead. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. If God's really keeping track of your sins and going to zap you for them, you'd be just plain dead. I wouldn't have survived two. Right? I mean, it, that's, so, so that's the problem is we, we, we think this way, but then we don't really think this way. And so what I'm saying is God, I don't know how to write this out. I just going to say it. Words, you know. <laughs> God does not love you based on your behavior, but your behavior should be based on the fact that God loves you. Does that make sense? God does not love you more or less based on your behavior, but we live holy and decent lives because God loves us. 
You don't have to go defend yourself. You don't have to go serve yourself. No, no. You have something better. His name is Jesus. God loves you for all of eternity. It's never going to change. Ever. So you have nothing to fear. You don't need to live a life in which you're trying to protect yourself at all times. You don't have to. You're protected. The almighty eternal God is your protector. Trust him to be that. So you are freed now from serving yourself to serving God and others, including with your words. Okay? Susan. Didn't we talk before about fearing God? Yeah. Be scared of him. How do you do this fear with the love of God? Yeah, he's big and strong and powerful. A little kid and you're afraid to crush your parents? Yeah. Um, So... I, I, this is something that I'm always working through. I listen to a lot of stuff on this and read a lot on it because I'm always trying to figure out how to, how to do this. But um, the fear of God, I am convinced of this. When it says in the Bible to fear God, you are supposed to be scared. It does not mean, oh, just respect him. No, it means be scared. He's big and powerful. He can kill you without even thinking. And he can kill you eternally without a thought. He's that powerful. He created the entire world by saying, let there be. And you think you're going to do anything before that? You think you have any power before that kind of power? He's eternal. You think your problems of today even affect him? Are you crazy? He's holy. He's not pretty good. He's holy. So your little, I tried really hard to be good today, No. You don't even deserve to breathe. He gives you your breath out of mercy. Don't you dare stand up before him and think you have something to do or say before him. He's almighty. He's eternal. You got nothing. You are nothing. Be scared. And that God loves you with an eternal love And every single thing in his entire creation, he says, I did this so that my son, Jesus Christ, could be love for you. So that now, every single thing about you, he loves and he treasures because it's in his son, Jesus. So now you stand before a holy God, not worthless, but in his son, Jesus Christ, as a holy and precious child. And he loves you like a father loves his favorite kid. Don't lie. I know you have favorites. I do too. I have two favorites, right? That's why. But, but the point is, like, like, a, like the perfect father perfectly loves his ch- children, so your father perfectly loves you. That never removes the fact that he is something to be feared. But that fear is then brought to the understanding of that's how big his love is for you. Right? So that then, and, and this, is the, this is how I think about it, or I try to think about it. I'm not very good at this sometimes. If all my fear is toward God, then what else do I have to fear? Nothing. What can man do to me? I don't have a problem with man hurting me. My fear is of the eternal almighty God. Right? I mean, seriously, what can you guys do? (laughs) 
compared to the eternal God, you guys got nothing. So what that does then is when I learn that that God loves, I no longer have anything to fear and I now know what love is. What full, complete love is. So that's why the commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. What else is left? Nothing. But if you find some left, what do you do with that? (coughs) You love your neighbor. Right? So this is why fear and love go together. Because when we understand that God is the only one to fear, because he is so enormously big and powerful in all the adjectives you can come up with, it also teaches us then how to love. Because he loves us, that drives every single thing we do. So that the main thing that we do as Christians is love. We've been loved by this almighty God, so then we learn to love. We learn to love him, and we learn to love neighbor. And everything we do. Does that make sense? Okay, so John chapter 2. All right, John chapter 2. Um, yeah, let's just read it, and then we'll, we'll get there probably the rest of this week and next week. But um, John chapter 2, someone read verses 12 through 22. After this, he went down... After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume you. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Okay, thank you very much. All right. What a fun story. So number one, when does this happen? Before Passover. Okay, good. The first thing is around the Passover. Now, this is important. In John, one of the ways to read the Gospel of John is to read about Passover. There are three Passovers in the Gospel of John. One is in, what is it, 2.13? Is that where we read it here? And then I think the next one is chapter 6, verse 4, and then 11.55. Let's make sure of those. There's three times the Passover is mentioned. Okay? So 2.13, and then chapter 6, verse 4, I'm hoping. Yes. Good. Yay. And then 11.55, which I'm pretty certain of. Probably one that's wrong. 
Yeah, 11.55, okay? So those are the three Passovers that are mentioned. There's also one in chapter five, verse one, but it, it you know, it's probably part of this one. Um, but um, there are three Passovers in the Gospel of John for which Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem in order to celebrate or go somewhere to celebrate it, okay? So there's three journeys. So what does that mean? How long is the ministry of Jesus? Two years. Okay, so this is one year, this is two. Okay, so this ministry of Jesus, beginning here at chapter 2, verse 13, is going to cover two years. Okay, the Synoptic Gospels probably cover another year, about. So we're looking at at an earthly ministry of Jesus that covers... Somewhere between two and a half to three and a half years. That's the best guess we have. Um, there is no specific time for how long he does. He conducts his earthly ministry. This is all tied to dating and all kinds of weird stuff. But in the Gospel of John, we simply have a little over two years. So this is one year. That's two years. That's the way it goes. Okay? Now, the important thing is you have three Passovers. That is helping us understand... Don't forget in the Gospel of John, everything John is telling us is sign that points to cross. So what that means is Passover, you're supposed to understand Passover as sign pointing to cross. Do you guys have anything that you do every Sunday that reminds you that the Passover was fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus? The Lord's Supper. Okay, the Lord's Supper is the explicit fulfillment of the Passover in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so what's missing from the Gospel of John that's really curious to everybody? The words of institution of the Lord's Supper. But, and you can actually look at this, there's a couple places we can look at online, I can show you some articles if you're interested. Um, there is a very strong... There's a lot of good evidence, I would say it that way, to read the entire Gospel of John as sacramental. It doesn't have the institution of either sacraments, right? Where's the institution of baptism? It's not in John. Matthew 28, right? And then you also have it in Acts 2, okay? And you also have it mentioned in 1 Peter 3. You also have it mentioned in Titus. But the real institution is usually... Uh, Matthew 28, Acts 2, those kind of things. Not in John. But in John 3, he says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And you've got all kinds of water going through the Gospel of John. All kinds of water in the Gospel of John. Right? Lord's Supper, where is it instituted? Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and 1 Corinthians 11. Okay, those are the four places the Lord's Supper is instituted by Jesus. That's where we have the words of institution. Not in John. But in John, you have this entire thread of blood and sacrifice and Passover and new covenant, new promises, fulfillment of the entire old in Christ, all these sacramental. And then in chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, you actually have Jesus talking about, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. Okay? So, very strong sacramental illusion there. Doesn't John uh, emphasize baptism in John 1 with, uh, with 
John the Baptist? Yeah, but that's not Christian baptism. Christian baptism is instituted by Jesus. The sacraments are instituted by Jesus, not by anybody else. So, well, so John's baptism wasn't a Christian baptism. It wasn't a Christian baptism. It was a pre-death and resurrection of Jesus baptism. Okay? So yeah, baptism is important in all the synoptic gospels with the, with the baptism of John. And especially in, in John does that as well. But the actual sacrament of holy baptism that is instituted by Jesus. You guys remember this? We're never getting to John 2, are we? Okay. A sacrament. Since we just had confirmation, we should go over this, right? What's a sacrament? First thing. Instituted by God, specifically Jesus. Right? And it has to have visible means what's that? Water <coughs> bread wine <coughs> and it has to give forgiveness of sins okay and if it's instituted by Jesus that means that the word of God is joined to this physical means to give forgiveness of sins. That's why it's called the means of grace. Okay? So that's how we determine sacrament. There are exactly two things that do that, that meet that list of criteria. There is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, in the Book of Concord, there's actually a couple of places where there's a third sacrament. Do you know what it is? Ops of the Keys or Holy Absolute Confession and Absolution. Okay? Because Jesus, in John 20, Jesus commissions the apostles to forgive sins. And so the visible means is actually your pastor, and it does give forgiveness of sins. So there are places in the Book of Concord where it speaks of Holy Absolution or Confession or even Penance as a sacrament. Okay? Does that make sense? And that's fine. You can, you can think of it that way. But, but historically speaking, there are two sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper, and this is why. Okay? But, but what I want you to get is that in the Gospel of John, this movement toward Passover as this kind of this, these important points in Jesus' ministry is moving us toward this final Passover. We're starting at 1155 through the end of the gospel. So from chapter 1155 through chapter 21 is all this week, this Passover week. Okay? So it's, it's this, this huge chunk of the gospel is really pointing to this third Passover in which Jesus will literally fulfill it on the cross. Does that make sense? So that's the journey we're on in this in this gospel. Okay? I'm not going to let you go yet. You guys owe me things. <laughs> uh, we'll get to the other when does this happen later. It's probably about the year 28, but we'll get there next week. Remind me. Number two, why does Jesus cleanse the temple? It's just to fulfill scripture. 
But in the Gospel of John, why? What is going on? That he, what's his point? What's that? No, see, that's more the synoptic gospels. In the synoptic gospel, he's he's confronting a wrong. He's actually doing something bigger here. He's saying, just like in the wedding at Cana, he is saying that this is the new sacrifice. That he himself is the new temple. This is the movement in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is temple. Where does God live? In his temple. That's what a temple is. It's a place where God lives. Right? So now, where is God? Jesus is saying, right here. I am the dwelling place of God with men. I am the temple of God. If you want to know where God is living, it's not a building. It's a person. So raise this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Right? They're like, oh, it took 46 years. He's like, hey. <sighs> right? So this is the big movement then in this, in this cleansing of the temple is for Jesus to say, really get the focus where God is dwelling with man. Okay, and they will kill him for that eventually. Okay, we got to go. Let's pray. Lord, your prophet Habakkuk said that you are in your holy temple. Let us learn to believe that. That you are in our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you forgive sins because of what he has done. That you give life because he has been raised. And that you are with us each and every day because we are the body of Christ, the place where you are pleased to dwell. So teach us to praise you, to serve you with our words, with our thoughts, and with our actions, that all might see the glory of God in Christ, that all might rejoice in his love for us. In Jesus' name. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.